0: Let's start by turning to 1 Samuel 20. So you can get into a lot of trouble reading the Old Testament. And there are loads of ways to do this, but the most popular way to do it is to treat the stories of the Old Testament as if they're written to teach you how to behave. Most of the stories in the Bible aren't written to teach you how to behave. That much is obvious, I think, if you read all of it, but it's not uncommon to avoid sections of the Old Testament because they're long. And so it happens that the few occasions we encounter the Old Testament revolve around its few most popular chapters, like the story of David and Goliath, or Moses and the Red Sea. Stories like these, outside of their context, can seem as if they're written to teach us how to behave. It's a neat trick, and it makes for easy reading, but it isn't so easily done when Abraham lies about his wife and gives her in marriage to a violent king. Or when Noah passes out stark naked, drunk on the world's first available grapes. Don't do that. Thank When our time in the Old Testament is limited to figures like David and Moses, especially when it's limited to brief episodes in their life, it's not difficult to read poorly and to draw bad conclusions. In reality, the stories of the Old Testament are broader and larger and more complex than Peter Rabbit or Hansel and Gretel. Often the hero of the story is hardly a good person. Sometimes the treasure gained cost more than it was worth. And occasionally the pagan sailors exhibit more virtue than the crimson-robed prophet. So in in nearly every case, the stories of the Old Testament aren't written to teach you how to behave. And of course I say all this because today's passage is an exception to that rule. Every so often the stories of the Old Testament are written to teach us how to behave or how not to Now we know that because the authors of the New Testament make it clear. Paul says, "...now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test." As some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. So that's Paul pointing to the story of the wilderness generation and saying, See, the reason we've been told this story is so that you would not behave. As they behaved. Or listen for a moment to the author of Hebrews. He draws our attention to Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Moses and Rahab and Gideon and Samuel and Samson and David. He doesn't draw your attention to their every action, but to one specific disposition common to all of these saints. And what's that disposition? Faith. And this is his conclusion. In other words, their stories were written down so that we'd know how to behave. In what way? To teach us to emulate their faith. To hope in a better land, in a better king, just like they did. Their faith stands as a witness to us, surrounding us with testimony after testimony, a chorus of voices proclaiming that the kingdom of God is worth losing everything for. The kingdom of God is worth losing everything for. And that is the point of this passage, too. The passage we're reading today is here to teach you and I how to behave. Namely, to teach us to prepare for the true King of Israel. And what it will cost us to do so. And why it's worth losing everything for. We're going to read a long chapter today, over 1,200 words. So before we start reading, I want to give you a tool that will help you see the point. It's easy in a chapter this long to lose the details, to get lost in the details, if you don't have a map. Luckily, this passage has a map if you know where to look for it. So bear with me for a moment. I know I'm going to see eyes rolling in a second. And I'm okay with that. The chapter of David's... This chapter of David's story has a chiastic structure. Okay? Repeat after me. Chiastic structure. You'll have to forgive me for that ridiculous term. But the concept is actually pretty simple. Uh, Let's do that first Uh, 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 slide. Okay. The Greek letter chi looks... Like this. An X. Okay? And when we say that a story is chiastic, we mean that the plot of the story follows... Let's go to the next next slide. Follows this line here. You tracking? Okay. Right smack in the middle of that story is the centerpiece. The purpose. The point of it all. X marks the spot. Now the way you can recognize a chiastic structure is by noticing that all of the action leading up to the centerpiece mirrors all of the action leading away from the centerpiece. You understand? Like this. Let's go to that next slide. David flees. Jonathan and David meet in a field. Jonathan goes to Saul. Saul's response. Jonathan goes from Saul Saul. I should have said from right there, but ignore it. Jonathan and David meet in a field, and then David flees. Make sense so far? Okay. Chiastic structures like this are actually very helpful, and they're all throughout the Scriptures. And the reason they're helpful is because this structure teaches you the direction of the story. It focuses your attention on that part of the story that gives meaning to the rest of the story. It'll keep you out of the weeds and focused on the centerpiece of the passage. X marks the spot. So I'm going to leave this up on the screen. And I want you to read with me this passage. As you read, follow the structure and try and focus on the centerpiece. Got it? All right, let's go. Start in verse 1 of chapter 20. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I'll do it for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king, but let me go, that I might hide that I might hide myself in the fields till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant, but if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Okay, let's pause for a moment. Remember that David is running away from Saul for good reason. Saul, who is the first king of Israel, has been cursed and rejected. David was chosen, though just a shepherd boy, to lead God's people instead. He is the better man, the true king of Israel. And so Saul wants to kill him and has been attempting to do so for a while. At first, it was brief episodes of manic rage when he was in pitiable states of torment, which David dismissed as momentary insanity. But from that point, much of Saul's time and much of Saul's people and his resources have been devoted to David's destruction. He initiates entire military campaigns with David at the helm in hope that David would fall in battle. He, believes, he, he gives his daughter to David in marriage, in hope that his enemies would seek his life. He commissions his court and his closest servants and his family members to kill David as soon as they have opportunity. So when David flees to seek counsel from the prophet of God, Saul travels to take his life personally. This has gotten serious. If you were here when we last opened Samuel, I hope you remember vividly what happens next. As Saul ascends the hill, the Spirit of God overwhelms him. He strips down naked in prophetic fits and he humbles himself before the prophet of God and the true King of Israel. Though he daily wore the crown and sat on the throne and donned the royal robes, he is stripped of his royal splendor and forced to humble himself before the true King. Of course, while Saul is yet overwhelmed with his momentary humiliation, David skips town because there's still a king after him and he's still commissioned his royal guard and his court and his servants and his family to murder David on the spot. And so so David flees to Jonathan. Jonathan, the prince of Israel, is faithful. He walks with God, he trusts God, and he hopes in the promises of God. Though Saul has always sought glory in the broken kingdom, Jonathan has always set his hope in God as king and in his better promises. So not long ago, when young David rushes onto the battlefield and proclaims the might of God and slays the giant Goliath, Jonathan was thrilled. And as soon as he had opportunity, Jonathan embraces the shepherd boy. And he gives him his royal robes and his armor and his royal sword. And he promises loyalty and protection forever and ever. In other words, Jonathan swears allegiance to the future king of Israel. So when David is fleeing from the wrath of Saul, there is no closer friend to whom he can turn. Because David and Jonathan have sworn in covenant to care for one another. Okay, so that's where our text begins. And in this first scene, David pleads with Jonathan for an explanation. Why does your father seek my life? It's a moment of desperation because David has searched his own heart and hasn't found any sin, any wrong in him that might justify this murderous rage. How do I know that? Listen to his words. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. That right there is an appeal to the law of God. Those guilty of violating the covenant of God have earned death. And David knows this. And his appeal, when David asks Jonathan to kill him if he finds him guilty, this appeal is actually a remarkable display of innocence. Because when the king of Israel seeks his life, he doesn't throw up his hands and proclaim his innocence. He searches his heart to discover sin that might have provoked the wrath of God. Jonathan, of course, dismisses outright the suggestion that David is guilty. But rather suggests that Saul doesn't truly intend to kill him. He, like David, has attributed Saul's recent violence to the tormented state of mind he's in. So together they conceive of a plan. The feast of the new moon is just around the corner, and Jonathan will return to his father's table. David will not. And David's absence is a problem because he's the king's son-in-law and his armor-bearer and a key leader in the king's army. In other words, he's always expected to be at the king's side at celebrated occasions. So Jonathan will return, and when Saul asks about David, Jonathan will tell him he's been requested to attend his father in Bethlehem. Saul's response, they both agree, will evidence whether or not he truly seeks David's life. Okay, keep reading. Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. Next scene. We're closing in on the centerpiece. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, on the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you might go away in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I might not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you'll be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself in the matter w- when the matter was at hand, and remain be- beside the stone heap. And I will go out and shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go, find the arrows. Now if I say to the boy, Look, the arrows on this side of you, take them, then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to, you, to the youth, Look, the arrows, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever." I want you to stop for a moment and imagine this scene because what happens in this field is actually very powerful. Think carefully about Jonathan's words. May the Lord be with you as He has been with my Father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from, the house, from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of His enemies of David from the face of the earth. There's never really been a clearer moment than this. This is Jonathan, future king of Israel, swearing allegiance to David, the better king. That loyalty began to materialize on Goliath's battlefield, but here it's made more explicit. May the Lord be with you as He has been with my father. How? How has the Lord been with His father? The Spirit rushed upon His Father when? When He was anointed King of Israel. And when the Spirit rushed upon His Father, the anointed King, He worked mightily to protect the people of God and to crush their enemies. So don't skim over that statement because when Jonathan says, May the Lord be with you, and when he doesn't stop there as a general blessing... But when he completes that statement with the words, as he has been with my father, he's implying that David will soon sit upon the throne. And then he says, if I am still alive, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan not only expects that David will soon sit upon the throne, but he expects that God will move mightily to vanquish David's enemies, among whom is his father's house. So, in the act of going and lying to King Saul, Jonathan is willing to risk his life on behalf of the true King of Israel. David will wear the throne David will wear the royal, royal robes. David will sit on the throne. And for Jonathan, literally his safest investment, and listen, his safest investment in his future joy, literally his most secure bet on his family's safety and his children's well-being is to risk his own life and his station on behalf of the shepherd boy. And so we have this kind of awkward moment, don't we? The Prince of Israel, who by all accounts is second only to His Father in power and in glory and in influence and in riches among all the people of Israel, and who has earned fame and honor on the battlefield, who has had songs written about him because of his faith and his courage and his might. The prince of Israel bows before this shepherd boy, pleading that he'd keep him safe, keep his family safe, pleading that he'd not be counted among his enemies. Do you see it? It's upside down. It's all backwards. Jonathan is supposed to be king soon. He has the throne within arm's reach. He is the royal son. And yet Jonathan's hope doesn't terminate on this broken kingdom or on momentary wealth and honor and power. He looks to a better kingdom. And as soon as he realizes that David is the true king of Israel... He lays all that he has aside in deference and he seeks to serve. Okay, keep reading. So David himself, so David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat at Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, Jonathan's place was empty. And Jonathan said to, and Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has, he not, why, why has not the son of Jesse come to, to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul. David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. And therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him, so Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field to the appointment with David, and with him a little boy. And he said to this boy, "'Run and find the arrows that that I shoot.'" As the boy ran, he shot an arrow behind, beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow behind, beyond you? And Jonathan called the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered all the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. They kissed one another and wept and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed. And Jonathan went into the city. Okay, before we focus our attention on the centerpiece of this passage, I want to very quickly dismiss what may be bothering some of you. David and Jonathan have agreed to lie to the king. But isn't that a sin? Aren't they violating the covenant by agreeing to lie to Saul? The simple answer, I think, is no. Because throughout the law, God seems to permit, even honor, acts of deception when that deception is employed to preserve innocent life. Now, I know this is a big ethical question, and I'm not an ethicist. Ethicist? That's the degree to which I'm not an ethicist. (laughs) We don't really have time to explore all the arguments associated with this question, but suffice it to say that Rahab the prostitute was honored among the faithful because she lied about the location of the Israelite spies and the midwives of Egypt were honored because they lied to Pharaoh and refused to kill the firstborn sons of Israel. When Jonathan and David agreed to lie about his whereabouts, they are doing so to preserve life, to protect the people of Israel from the blood guilt of the innocent. So no, they are not guilty of violating the covenant. And if it helps, I'm not sure you'll ever find yourself in this situation, so it's best not to lie ever. So Jonathan proceeds with the plan. And on the first day of the feast, Saul says nothing. Seems like a good sign. But we get some insight into Saul's thoughts. And apparently Saul believes that he'd have an opportunity to kill David tomorrow night. As he must be ritually unclean and therefore physically unable to join them at the table. But when he's gone on day two, Saul asks the question. Jonathan lies to him about David's whereabouts, and then we read the following words You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. There it is. Do you remember the structure? X marks the spot. This is the centerpiece. The statement that gives meaning to the rest of the passage. You have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Now, if you set aside the curses, those are actually true words. From the moment he declared loyalty to the true king of Israel, Jonathan submitted himself to a life of shame. Jonathan's covenant to David was a statement of recognition. My kingdom is nothing. The honor, the wealth, the power I've inherited is nothing. Whatever gain he had, he counted as loss for the sake of the true king of Israel. Indeed, Jonathan counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of David's coming kingdom. For David's sake, Jonathan was willing to suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that he may stand in the favor of the true king of Israel. And as soon as Jonathan swore loyalty to the coming king and laid down his life on his behalf, he ensured that his own kingdom would come to nothing and would fade into rubbish. Jonathan declares allegiance to David to his own momentary shame. For as long as the son of Jesse lives... His kingdom will not be established. Momentary shame. But this investment, this investment that Jonathan makes in the true kingdom will yield dividends. When they return to David, when they return to the field, David and Jonathan weep together. But don't miss Jonathan's last words to David before he flees. Go in peace because we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Do you see how frequently Jonathan reminds David of the covenant they've made together? How frequently he references the oaths they made? It's almost an obsessive tick three times just in this passage. Why? Why keep reminding David that they've sworn to care for one another? To protect one another? To keep one another's families safe? Why? Because Jonathan is risking everything for the coming kingdom. He has not hedged his bets. He hasn't diversified his portfolio. Jonathan has set all his hope in the coming kingdom. It will cost him his relationships. It will cost him his title. And it will cost him his life. But it's worth it as long as he stands in the favor of the coming king. That's why. And that was a good investment. Because this king weeps with those who would shame themselves if they strive toward his kingdom. And this king remembers them forever. This is a fascinating moment. Two future kings weeping together. In a field. They've both decided to lay down their lives for a better kingdom. They've both decided to risk it all to see the kingdom of God established. And this moment is powerful because that decision is very clearly painful for both men. David is weeping as he flees, and he's leaving behind any hope of peace. He's leaving behind his wife, he's leaving behind his best friend. Jonathan is weeping as he returns. He's setting aside his claim to the throne, to wealth and power and honor, to peace in his father's house. They weep together because suffering is painful, but they weep together in hope. They envision together the kingdom of God, and they're willing to lay down their lives to prepare for it. Are you? Listen, as long as the son of Jesse lives, your kingdom will not be established. Look, those words were spoken by a fool king in a crumbling kingdom about a mortal man. But they ring true. The son of David lives. Will you prepare for his coming kingdom? It will cost you everything. It means laying down wealth and title and honor. It means your kingdom will not be established. But lay down your life and this king will weep with you through suffering. And he will remember you in favor forever and ever. Amen. Lay down your title and this king will make you a co-heir. Lay down your crown and this king will reign together with you over a better kingdom forever and ever. I alluded to Paul's words before, but I think they're worth considering closely. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth In the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is a powerful testimony because Paul was a man of reputation. He had devoted years to his career. This was a Pharisee among. Pharisees, the most respected s- scholars among the people of Israel. Paul was ascending the ranks, and he was barely beyond adolescence. So when Paul says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, he isn't merely talking about missionary poverty. He isn't merely talking about hungry and homeless nights. He's referring to the kingdom he left behind. When Paul recognized that the true king had arrived, he saw what Jonathan saw My kingdom is crumbling. For as long as the son of Jesse lives, my kingdom will not be established. And so he left it behind. It's time to leave your kingdom behind. It's time to walk away from your pretender king robes. The game is up. The true king lives. And as long as the son of David lives, your kingdom will not be established. What I'm not saying is that you need to mentally prepare yourself for not encountering success like you might have had if Jesus won a part of your life. That's nothing compared to the true cost of discipleship. Following Christ isn't merely expecting that sometimes sharing your faith at work might mean that you don't get that promotion. No. Following Christ may mean quitting your job because 70 hours a week seems like a lot of investment in a crumbling kingdom. It may mean taking a pay cut to transfer to a different department so that you can have more time to spend investing in the kingdom of Christ. It may mean giving up every night and weekend of your foreseeable future to serve families that are hurting from that recent diagnosis, or to serve families that are preparing to foster orphans. It may mean serving even when you're tired, and even when you had plans this weekend. Saul was correct. The son of Jesse lives to our shame, momentary shame. because when you see that the present kingdom is crumbling, you leave it behind you. And it will mean that your coworkers hate you because you won't stop talking about the vanity of losing families for promotions. And it may mean that your father curses your name because you keep mentioning the consequences of sin and the call to repentance. And it may mean perpetual poverty because as soon as you stash away a little bit, For that long vacation you've always been hoping for, someone in the church gets sick. So you'll keep driving your beater, and date night might be at Taco Bell. Because listen, anything is worth giving up to prepare your brothers and sisters in Christ for the better kingdom, am I right? It's best to accept now that your life as a Christ follower will be a life of momentary shame. Momentary discomfort. Momentary poverty. Momentary pain. Momentary loss. Momentary sacrifices. Momentary loneliness. But everything you give up for the coming king is but a grim shadow of that which you'll receive when the king returns. What a king! This king weeps with those who suffer on his behalf. This king gives title and authority to those who set aside the honor of their broken kingdoms. And this king gives life unending to those who would lay down their lives to prepare for his return. So, here's the application. May we, together as a church... Suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that we may gain Christ and be found in Him. Amen? Let's pray and prepare for the table. Guys, if you can come up for service.